Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. I remember learning to ride my bike when I was, you know, four or five, six, around that age. You get the training wheels, and then you get the training wheels off, and I was feeling pretty proud of myself because I could ride my bike fine. And then I would see older kids, you know, they're like nine, ten, or they're teenagers, and they'd ride around on their bike with like one hand down, and they were like really relaxed. Or, did you ever see this, the people that just ride with their both hands down? And I saw that, and I'm like, I, I got to figure that out. Like, they know tricks, and I don't know tricks. And so I remember I was probably five, maybe six, in our neighborhood, and I tried to give you know the one-hand thing, and it got wobbly really fast. And so I thought, I'm not going to know hands until I can master one hand. But I still felt insecure and embarrassed that I had no tricks. And then I thought, well, I could develop my own biking trick. I've never seen other people do this, but I bet this would be cool. I'm going to go bike down the road, and instead of taking my hands off, I'm going to close my eyes. <laughs> this is smart, you know. So here I go, five years old, down our road, and I'm preparing for my moment, no hands. I'm hoping there's teenagers probably watching me, you know, seeing how cool and amazing I am, and so... Off I go, and then now comes my moment, and I close my eyes, and I pedal, and I pedal, and I pedal. And then when I open my eyes, I'm underneath a pickup truck. Now, it was parked. I found it. It didn't find me. But I wandered home, and I was scraped up real bad and cried lots. Mom bandaged me, and, and vision is important, isn't it? <laughs> I learned the hard way. That you can try to go somewhere, but if you don't have vision, you're in trouble. If you have vision, you can get somewhere. Every organization must understand why it exists and what matters most to it. Today, I want you to see what matters most in Comox Pentecostal Church as we move forward together. At the end of our gathering this morning, every household is going to be sent home with a booklet that outlines mission statement, values, strategic steps for all of us. And I want every household to take this home. And now, if, I'll just say this. If you happen to be a note taker during messages, don't even try today. We're going to get through a lot of stuff. Don't bother. We've made the notes for you. You get to take this home and you can study this later. So everybody after the service, please pick this up. And I look forward to hearing about your thoughts as you look through it later on. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. Open your Bibles, open your apps to Acts chapter 2. I'd love to hear the pages of a few Bibles opening as we go today. Acts chapter 2. As we're going there, you've heard me say something like this a couple times, but let me remind you. There was a highly educated doctor in the first century who decided to abandon his way of thinking because he became so compelled by the teaching and the way of Jesus. And he became a follower of Jesus. His name was Luke. He contributed to followers of Christ for centuries since by writing a two-volume work that appears in our scriptures, the first being the Gospel of Luke, the second being the book of Acts. In the Gospel of Luke, 
everything thematically is about Jesus, his words and his works, going towards Jerusalem, and that's where he dies on the cross and then is resurrected. And that's how the story, the gospel story of Jesus concludes in the gospel of Luke. Then he pens his second volume called the book of Acts, and it picks up where? In what city? Jerusalem. Again, the very epicenter of what Jesus began. And instead of staying in Jerusalem, it moves beyond and out from Jerusalem. Jesus has ascended at the beginning of the book of Acts, but his message and his ministry continue. How is that possible? By his spirit through his church. And the momentum of the book of Acts from chapter 1 all the way through its end is about the message and the ministry of Jesus continuing through his church toward everyone and everywhere. There's another thing that if you study how Luke writes, you'll pick up on. He has a pattern, uh, and it's not exact every time, but he'll, he'll tell story, and then story, and then story, and then drops in a summary, and then story, story, summary. Story, narrative, summary, story, story. And in Acts chapter 2, it's kind of similar. If you're familiar with Acts chapter 2, it starts out with the great story of the outpouring of God's Spirit at Pentecost upon his church. So there's a Holy Spirit story. And that moves swiftly into a Jesus story where Peter and these first followers of Christ begin telling the greatest message on earth to those who would listen. And 3,000 respond and begin following Jesus. So there's a Holy Spirit story. Then there's the Gospel of Jesus story. And then... There's a summary, and that's where we're going to turn our attention, verse 42 through verse 47. Story, story, blueprint for church. That summary, Luke seems to be writing about perhaps at least the next 30 years of church history. Instead of focusing on just, well, this happened this day and this happened this day, he summarizes about 30 years in a few verses. And it's vitally important for us to look Toward, because within his writing there is a picture of what original church and ongoing church is intended to be and become. There was a problem or the potential for a problem in the early church. And it was this. Many of the first followers of Christ had come, in, had come out of a highly empty, ritualistic, religious version of their Jewish faith. It didn't mean much. I mean, they had a few practices and habits that they could kind of get done once a week, and they could live totally differently the rest of the week. Faith was minimal for them. It, it lacked substance. And here, these first followers, they've had a lot of early excitement I mean, there's the Holy Spirit activity, and then 3,000 more are added. And so there's a lot of great things going on. But as they face their next 30 years, will they default back into empty, ritualistic practices with no substance? Or will they continue to follow Jesus with meaning, with passion, with substance? Will they continue the things that he started? Will they allow God's spirit to fill them and empower them to carry on the works and words of Jesus into everyday life? 
let's turn our attention to the text to find out what the next 30 years and beyond began to look like for the church. Read this with me. You can follow along on the screens. In verse 42, we begin. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Can you say that word with me? Awe. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and their goods, they gave to anyone as they had need. There's that line again. <laughs> Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I suppose we could mine out so many things identified in this blueprint, but I want to begin by just giving you three quick observations. First is this. The people of the church have purpose. How did the early church avoid the problem, avoid the trap of just empty ritualistic faith? They realized they had purpose. And their purpose was intrinsically linked to the words and the works of Jesus and that mattered deeply to them. They weren't interested in just punching in and punching out on a Sunday and sort of, well, now we'll just go to quality foods and eat something. Off we go into my own week and see how it goes. No, there was something of substance in their gathering that caused them to live differently through the rest. There was tremendous purpose. Secondly, the people of the church are empowered. I mean, we know that from the beginning of Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes in tremendous, exciting, phenomenal power, and it fills their lives. But that's not just it. They're empowered in all kinds of ways. When we read this Acts 2, 42 through 47 passage, who's doing the stuff? Is it, is it just the leaders, or is it the people of the church, all the followers of Christ. It's the everybody's, it's the all peoples that are involved in what God's doing. They are all empowered. Didn't matter background, race, all of the different social divides at the time. They became one in Christ and empowered to live out their faith in a meaningful way all week long. They were empowered. All the people of the early church in that blueprint we see, they knew they were missionaries. If you've grown up in a church setting or you've been around a church for a little while, you've probably heard about missionaries. And for most of us, we think, oh, missionaries, they're the people that come from overseas and give a presentation in our church sometimes. And that's true, but it's about 50% true. Why? Because we are all missionaries. You are a missionary right here in the Comox Valley. You are a missionary in your neighborhood, in your workplace, or at your school, wherever you hobby, wherever you get coffee or other drinks. You are a missionary. That's how the early church was, and that's how we are called to be too. The people of the church are empowered. Thirdly, the people of the church are committed to the everyday version of faith. Did you notice in that passage how often it talked about daily or everyday it didn't just say, Sir, you know, once a week or at Easter and Christmas, here's what the church did. They put on a good play and a few people got involved and then they kind of wandered around for a bit. But then they showed up again at Easter. No, it, it was everyday faith. It must have mattered a lot 
to them. Now, with these things in mind, I want to bring to you today a new mission statement for our church family to embrace together. Now, as we go into this journey, we may have a vision booklet. We may have been through a two-year process. As I wrote about in the Dearly Beloved a couple weeks ago, we haven't arrived at a finish line. We're really at a starting line. So there's going to be some things I share with you in the next few moments, a mission statement, some values, some strategic steps. And some of it is going to resonate quickly for us. And others, we're going to think, I'm going to need some time to continue to ponder this one and learn what this means. And that's our journey together. A mission statement matters to an organization. And for our church moving forward, with the Acts 2 blueprint in mind, here is a statement you're going to begin seeing and hearing more often that describes the kind of direction we go, that helps us understand the kind of things we will do and the kind of things we won't do. Here it is. Our mission statement is this. Comox Pentecostal Church is bringing the message and the ministry of Jesus into everyday life. We are bringing the message and ministry of Jesus into everyday life. Would you say that with me right now? We're bringing the message and ministry of Jesus into everyday life. Now, if you see this on our website one day or on a Connect card or something that we've printed, I wonder when you read it if you'll wonder, well, who's doing that? Or maybe a guest would visit our church website and see this line somewhere and they think, oh, that's what that church is doing. Who's doing this? It's important that we ponder this for a moment. Who's actually bringing the message and ministry of Jesus into everyday life? A few weeks ago, uh, Doug Frederick, our guest, he dropped this line on us as he was approaching a text in Scripture. He said, we've got to ask, who's the who? And I think when we think about this, we have to ask, who's the who? Now, the easy Sunday school right answer is, well, Jesus is doing it all. He really is, in and through us. But when you see that, I don't want you to think, oh, that's what church staff are supposed to do. No. That's what missionaries do. We, you and I together, this isn't a, a clergy assignment, it's a body of Christ assignment. We are bringing the message and ministry of Jesus into everyday life. I and the other members of our pastoral team cannot enter your everyday life and bring the message and ministry of Jesus into that for you. We cannot. But imagine the potential when you and I together begin to learn more and more. What does it look like for me to bring the message and ministry of Jesus into my office place or into my work van and to the job site or to the classroom or to the golf course? It's possible. I mean, if you were to look at what we've seen in Acts chapter 2, that's what they were doing. Whatever their sphere of influence was, whatever their Monday or their Thursday looked like, that's where the message and ministry of Jesus went. And they brought it with them. Obviously, the most important word in this mission statement is the name Jesus. We're bringing the message and ministry of Jesus into everyday life. I know it's obvious, but I have to state it. Our mission statement is not about our church. 
We're not trying to go to the Comox Valley and invite people into Comox Pentecostal Church. We're not asking them to ask Comox Pentecostal Church into their heart and to serve Comox Pentecostal Church as their Lord and Savior. As wonderful as I think you are and our church family is, we're not their Savior, we're not their Lord, but we're pointing them to one, the only one. It's not about a program, it's not about a church, it's not about a personality, it's about Jesus. His message, his ministry into everyday life. This, my friends, as we see in Acts as well, talks about and points towards a type of faith that has substance, a type of faith that is much more than Sundays. And I want to commend you, as we've been through this journey through the last two years of discovering and defining vision, I sense, I pick up, I hear this from many people. This matters to us. We do care about living our faith on Monday afternoon, on Thursday at 8.30 in the morning. It matters to us. Thank you for being a kind of people that this is important to. Values are important to organizations as well. Values are intangibles that matter a lot. Values reflect culture and shape culture. Values in a church or any organization, is never, it's never about creating an exhaustive list. We've been through a process these last two years. I took notes in over 25 different kinds of meetings and settings, and uh, through the process of sort of discerning what values to give focus to over the next several years, we had a list of words. I don't know, there might have been up to 80 words to work with. Well, that's kind of impossible to put in front of an organization and say, here's our 80 values, go for it. And so we look for ones that have certain things in common and begin grouping them together. A values list is never exhaustive. It's never actually complete. It's a living list. And so today I'm going to present to you seven important vital values for our church moving forward. But I promise you in the next few years, there may be additions, there may be subtractions. We're going to follow the leading of God's spirit as needed through our journey forward together. So let's begin looking at Seven values, and again, this is going to come at you fast. That's why you get to take a booklet home with you to try to absorb some of this over time into our future. The first one may not come as a surprise to you. It's this, 127. Sound familiar? Well, wasn't that the series we were just in? Tricked ya. We already started our vision stuff last month. Our first value is 127. What does that mean? We value people. I see this in your lives. I hear this in how you talk about one another. I hear this in how you pray for one another. I observe this in the way that you welcome people who are disadvantaged or different or even difficult. And if you want to know who is really difficult in our church, just wake up in the morning and look in the mirror. It's all of us, right? It's all of us. Boy, were you thinking I was going to give you a name? Boy. You value people. You value, like we heard last week, souls. The eternal soul of every person in this congregation, of the 65,000 plus people that surround this church building. These souls matter to us. They have eternal consequence. Others matter to us. Second value for our church. Holiness. 
holiness. Now, some of you who are grammar majors are looking and saying, I think there's a mistake there. There's a W. It's on purpose. Holiness. What might we mean by holiness? We value health. Being whole people. Health matters to Jesus. How do we know? <laughs> he spent a fair amount of time actually healing physical bodies in the gospel. That sends us a big clue. Health matters to him. But beyond just physical health, Jesus spent time healing souls, listening to people, validating people. He was helping people in their inner world come alive. And you and I have things going on in our lives that need attention. And sometimes it means we have to slow down and heal up. And that's okay. Take the time that we need. As a church family last fall, our emphasis together was emotionally healthy spirituality. And through that journey, I discovered, I watched in your lives a growing sense of it's going to be hard work at times to heal up on the inside, but it's worth it. And you know what? It's, it's never actually finished, but it's worth the time it takes to let Jesus do good, deep work in our lives. And I want to commend you again as a church family for valuing health. I see and I hear in you that you value health in relationships, marriages, friendships. You value health in your soul, in your emotional world, in your mental world. And as an organization, we value being a healthy organization. Third value. The first and the best plan. The first and the best plan. What in the world might we mean there? Well, when Jesus, when, when God started it all, if we flip all the way back into Genesis, as wonderful as ministries are, as wonderful as churches are, when God created the earth and he planted a garden, he didn't put a ministry in there, he didn't put a church in there, he put a family in there. God's first and his best plan for advancing his blessing and his purposes globally is family, and it still is his best plan. So our third value is that we value family. I'm grateful for the families that make up Comox Pentecostal Church, and we have families of all kinds. And guess what? As wonderful as so many of us and our families are, none are perfect. They all require work and time and attention and the ongoing embrace of this value together. Family matters. It mattered to Jesus, it matters in Scripture, and it matters to you and I moving forward. A couple of weeks ago, we had a leadership council meeting of our board, and we got a note from one of our board members right beforehand saying, a little change in our family plans came our way, and it's a daughter's birthday, and the planning changed, so I might end up missing out today, and so wondered, okay, are they showing up, or are they not? We just carried on with our meeting, and in the end, they didn't show up. <gasps> a board member didn't show up at a meeting? I was so proud. I texted them and thanked them afterwards. Because when that individual on our team is on their deathbed one day, they're not going to be thinking, you know, I really should have been at that board meeting. They're going to be thinking about their daughter and that relationship. Why? Because they value family. And at the highest levels of our leadership in a church, we will miss a board meeting, a staff meeting, a Sunday if we have to, if it's for family. We value family. Fourth, we value, 
the big smile of Achu. Okay, again, I just remind you, we're going to have years to unpack what all of this means. Some of you are thinking, Do, does anybody have a gift of interpretation of tongues? Because what just happened right now? <laughs> the big smile of Achu. Listen, Jesus said in Scripture, it's better to give than to receive. It's more blessed to do that. Other places in Scripture point to this fact that when we give, there is a secret joy that's unlocked in our lives in the act of giving. It's so interesting. And I think it's because, in a way, it's a rebellion against the system of our world. Because our whole world, and even our own you know, autonomous self-default natures, it's all about get, 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 me, me, me. But when we give, a new joy is unlocked in our lives. And my goodness, this church values generosity. I want to commend you. I want to thank you for loving others generously. Last week, there's a newcomer that's been part of our church family, and some people learned they need some transport help. They don't have a bicycle. And so a group of ladies in our church got together and gave this individual a bicycle. Now, I think that's fantastic. Some churches, when you're a newcomer, they give you like a mug or a pen or something. <laughs> We've raised the bar unbelievably. Do you need a vehicle? Do you need a bicycle? Do you need a flight somewhere? We got you covered. I don't know if we're doing that long term or not, but that individual got a bicycle because there was a need in their life. I mean, this is what we read about in the blueprint in Acts, isn't it? Selling their possessions and goods they gave to one another as they had need. Those who participated in giving somebody else in a bike, they could have done other stuff with that resource. But they chose to sacrifice it and give to somebody else. And I know for them it unlocked joy for them. I know it. Why? Because they couldn't keep it to themselves. They weren't showing off. They weren't trying to boast about their generosity. But even before the act happened, somebody came to me in the lobby and was like, I've got to tell you about what we're doing after the service. And they were just so excited they couldn't keep it in. I was like, you might need to go to the washroom first or you're going to explode. And then people are tagging me in this video afterwards. Pastor Frank, you guys see what happened? Look what we did. Look what happened. They weren't trying to show off. They were full of joy. Joy that comes when we learn how to be people not that clutch and hold, but people that live open-handedly and are generous. Thank you for being a generous people. Fifthly, we value going out on a limb. Okay, that's maybe a little easier to decipher, isn't it? We value risk. We value risk. We see this in scripture. We see this in Jesus. Think about the stories in the gospels of these lepers who are healed by Jesus. Their lives changed forever. Why? How? God, the purest being in all universal existence and eternity, comes to earth and gets close to people who everybody was afraid of, if I touch them, I'm going to catch their disease too. And God, when he gets close, I mean, probably the disciples around him think, oh, no, no, Jesus, don't get too close to these lepers. We don't want them making a mess on God. Well, that's not how it works. When God shows up and touches people, it brings transformation. It was a risk for a rabbi to move towards a leper. And Jesus did it. And Jesus moved towards you and I, didn't he? And that risk has paid off in our lives. And there have been others, like we prayed about earlier in the service, who they took risks so that faith could come to your life or your family line. 
They risked their own safety or other things. They risked rejection. They risked security. And they just thought, I have to tell somebody about you. I have to. And so the risks of others have led to you having faith today. And I think on the other side of some new risks for us, we'll find that fruit doesn't grow on the inside of the tree where it's safest and most secure. It grows where? Out on a limb where it's risky. And God's called us to be a fruit-bearing tree, and it's going to mean we're going to take some more risks at times where we think, I mean, we've kind of done the math here, and if this doesn't work out, ooh, what? But we feel led by God in this. A year ago, we were gathering as a leadership council. We had done a bunch of work on budget, looking backward, looking forward, and there was a thought, I bet God is, what if God was positioning us to reach even more children and even more teens? Could this be a year that we could expand our staffing so that we could do that? And we were kind of right on the line of like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense, but what if it, what if it doesn't work out? And I just love the faith and the risk of people that are in leadership in our church. One of the members of our council at the time, Calvin Farnell, after we had dialogue and dialogue, he said, if God's called us to do it, we've just got to do it. We're going to trust that he's going to make a way for us. And so the decision was made, and it's a risk. But can you imagine if we hadn't taken that risk? If we just played it safe and backed off and what if our way out of an opportunity? When we learn to embrace risk, we have to learn how to embrace failure as well. We have to learn how to not just celebrate the results that occur, but also the risks that were taken and the failures that happen sometimes along the way. I hope you know that you're in a safe place to make a mistake if you're trying to go out on a limb for a kingdom advancement once in a while. Of course, we love telling testimonies and stories of things God has done, but I want you to know if you've tried something, you tried reaching out to a neighbor or a coworker and they rejected you, well done. You took a risk. Because we could play it safe for the rest of our days. And guess what? Last one left, turn out the lights, lock it up, we're done. That's not how it works in God's kingdom. We serve a God who's way too big for us to be safe all the time. I'm not talking about being reckless, but I'm talking about trusting a God who calls us into bigger and bigger things. Sixth value. The story of God and the five trees. By the way, anybody who was at camp remembering, like, I think I've heard some of this before, tricked you then. Like, we were trying to get you to memorize values before you even knew they were values. The story of God and the five trees. What in the world might we mean by that? Scripture tells a story from front to back. And I, I get it. Scripture at times is a bit challenging to understand. How do I navigate this? What's actually going on here? What's with all the these and the thous and the begets and children and family lines and all that kind of stuff? But when you step back, when you view the Scripture from maybe a 40,000 foot view and you see there is a unique story going from front all the way to back. And the Bible is not about me. It's about God, and there is something he's doing. And the series we do later this month and into next month called Gospel Fluency is going to tell us the story of the five trees of Scripture, the gospel story. We value the gospel. I love that this church family values Scripture, its authority, its strength to speak into our lives. 
This church is longing to be good news people, and that matters to me. About two and a half years ago, as Laura and I were in the process with the search committee that was looking for new leadership here, one of the things that drew us towards this church, aside from the community and all the wonderful people we already knew, was that in the search committee conversations, on several occasions, people would say things like this, we would just love to see more baptisms happening again where people like neighbors or coworkers, others from the community are, are discovering the love and truth of Jesus. And I think, okay, if that's in the heart of a leadership of a church, uh, we can work with that. These are people who love the gospel message of Jesus enough to think, we've got to figure out how does this work in the Comox Valley. And so this fall, the series, Gospel Fluency, is going to just help us take some more steps forward in learning how to speak the good news language of Jesus into everyday life. Seventh, and lastly, seven cups, not seven, sorry, three, that's three, three cups of tea and six other friends. Three cups of tea and six other, you need an interpreter again, what does this mean? In Asian cultures, some Asian cultures, it's said that three cups of tea is the time it takes for a stranger to become a friend. Statistics say that in North America, the primary way that adults make a decision to follow Jesus is that they have seven credible Christian friends in their life. So if you and I learn how to become a better friend to our neighbors, coworkers, classmates, people that we hobby with, Maybe you have three cups of tea with one of those people and then help them find six other friends. That might help us reach people in this community even better. What do we, what do we actually value when we're saying this? We value relational witness. We value relational witness. And when you look at Jesus, my goodness, this was his approach too. Even when he's sort of self-designating his own purpose when he says the Son of Man came, which he says three times in the Gospels, one of those times he says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. How did he fulfill his mission? Eating and drinking. Luke especially picks up on this. Luke has Jesus eating everywhere in his Gospel. He's either at a feast, on his way to a feast, or leaving a feast. Why? Because eating and being with others and becoming friends with others is how the Gospel touches lives. We don't grab our gospel guns and do drive-by, try to get people that way. We're not getting gospel grenades and hucking them into a crowd and hoping that it makes a difference. We're putting on a pot of tea or brewing whatever you like and learning how to be a friend with people who don't know Jesus yet. Listening, caring, taking interest. Even if they never follow Jesus ever, we just love them because they're a great, they're 127, it's a person, we love them. And we help them find other friends who know and love Jesus too. I look up in the balcony today and I'm reminded of how our church is already doing this and I love it. One Sunday in August, I showed a picture as we celebrated Aaron and Trisha's wedding. They got married in August on a boat. It was absolutely lovely. They were baptized this past Easter. And months before that, I'm not sure if they would have said they knew Jesus and were following him totally or not. They came out of different kinds of lifestyles. But some years ago, there were at least two people in our church family and probably some others who perfectly today, I didn't ask them to do this, are sitting in the row right behind them. 
There's Chris McCaffrey and Josiah Johnson and their spouses as well. Josiah and Chris got to know Aaron and said, well, we should just hang out. And so they hang out and they become a friend with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And then they help that friend feel included and welcomed into other settings where they have other friends, like their small group. And instead of being an inward-focused small group, they decided, hey, let's care about others that aren't part of our faith. And so they do. And Aaron's kind of swept up into the current of friendship with a group of people. Years ago, that begins, and then it turns into baptisms, turns into their marriage, and a, a family that's being transformed by the love and truth of Jesus. Am I right? I'm right. Three cups of tea and six other friends. We've got a few stories already. There's more coming. So, as we begin to land the plane here, Anytime there's a vision for a church, anytime that there's a mission statement, you know, we're bringing the message and ministry of Jesus into everyday life. Great. How do we do that? How? There's going to be a lot of things that our church does. We've done a lot of things in our past. We've got more things in our future. But if I could call you, if our leadership could call you to only four things, only four, here's what they would be. Because I think if we focused on these four things, we're going to see more of mission fulfillment, the actual message and ministry of Jesus into everyday life. Here's the four things. And again, we're at the beginning of a journey. We're going to learn more and more in the future what this actually means. First is this, gospel intentionality together. What does that mean? Well, what do you do during the week with other people around you that you could just add gospel intentionality to? I'm not asking you to start up a whole bunch of new programs in your life. Laura and I asked this question once years ago. What are we doing right now that we could just add gospel intentionality to? Our answer was, we watched the Amazing Race TV show. Well, what does it look like for us to add gospel intentionality to it? We didn't have to add new programming to our life. It wasn't another new night of the week. It was something we were already doing, but we just decided, let's invite neighbors to come to this and see if they want to watch TV with us. And then we decided, what if we start potlucking? You know, they travel. Oh, they're going to uh, Vietnam. Well, everybody, let's bring Vietnamese food next week. Great. And at the end of that week, we watched the show, and now they're off to Cambodia. Okay, everybody, find a Cambodian recipe, and now we're going to bring it together. We had some weeks where we had over 30 neighbors in our home watching TV with us. It wasn't a new night of the week for us. It wasn't a new program or event. It was, ironically, it was my day off as a pastor. It was my most fruitful day of ministry every week because I had this house full of neighbors who didn't know Jesus yet. And we were watching TV and eating food together. That was our answer. But what does it look like in your life? What do you do? Golf, disc golf, hobbies that you have, work, neighborhood, school. What would it look like for you to add some gospel intentionality, not on your own, but with others. When Laura and I did that in our neighborhood, we invited a few people in our church, not everybody, a few people to participate with us. And they became friends with people who didn't know Jesus yet. And I think there's something for us to think about there. Second thing we call everybody in our church family towards is this DNA relationships. You need in your life at least one or two other people that you can open your soul towards that you can be accountable to, that you can receive care and love, that you can grow alongside with. What does DNA stand for in our context here? Discipleship, nurturing, and accountability. Some of you might find this in a life group. You might form some relationships in a pop-up group or in a coffee club. What matters most is not what it's called, but that you have this. Do you have one or two other people that are kindred in faith in Jesus that you can grow with, that you can open your soul to, and that you can care for and receive care from. 
If the answer is no, don't be ashamed. Many of us, we're like, mm, I have some surfacey connections. Let's learn how to get depth in those connections so that we can grow closer to Christ together. The third thing that we would call everyone to, and friends, if we did gospel intentionality together, if we did DNA relationships, we've got really good traction. Here's the third thing we'd call everyone to, Sundays. Congratulations, you're doing it. You're here. You're here online with us right now too. Sundays. Sundays isn't just about punching in, punching out. Good, I went to church this week. No. More and more you're going to find that our gathering together, when we are together like this, it's about two things. Encountering God's presence together in worship and equipping the saints for ministry. You know, Scripture doesn't talk about pastors and church staffs, uh, you know, that they exist to equip ministries for saints. You know, we're not just event planners that plan things for you to come to. It's actually the reverse. Scripture in Ephesians says, no, 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 don't just plan events for the church people. Plan the church people for the mission field. Prepare them. Help them. That's what Sundays is about. Sundays matters for children. Sundays matters for teens. Sundays matters for you and I and everybody in between. I didn't mean to rhyme there, but there you go. You got it. Fourth, lastly, most importantly, if we could call you to four things, if I could only call you to one thing, <laughs> if I could only call you to one thing, it's to Jesus. Not a person, not a program, not a personality, not a church. I call you to Jesus, your first love. If there's one thing that matters most in this church, it's that our vision is always Jesus. It's always Jesus. As we looked through the book of Hebrews in the summer, we came to this sort of summarizing text. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2. Psalm 16, 8, you've heard me say this before. I have set the Lord always before me. Got this, Chris? I came across this other passage in Mark recently, and I just loved it. I want you to see this with me. Mark chapter 9, verse 15. Do we have that one there too, Chris? Mark chapter 9. There we go. Listen to this. I want you to picture this with me. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder. And they ran to joyfully welcome if there's one thing I'm calling you to, if there's one thing we're calling the Comox Valley to, it's to behold Jesus. I think this, this verse wasn't just capturing one thing that happened once in the gospel narrative. I think for many of you, you realized in those moments when I've seen Jesus with the greatest clarity, I, I relate to that. I feel overwhelmed with wonder. And if he was in the room, I would run to welcome him. I wouldn't just be like, oh, hey, cool, there he is. I would run to welcome him. And that's our longing for this church family. That's our longing for our community. The last text I want to bring you to as we conclude today is Revelation chapter 1. John, the writer, has his eyes open to an unseen realm, and God is showing him symbolic, wondrous things. And he says this, writing in verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. There's all kinds of imagery here. I'll explain a few of these things in a moment. And among the lampstands, could you say the word among? 
Among the lampstands was someone like a son man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white with wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. Why was that? His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm the living one, I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever and now I hold the keys to death and Hades. Chris, if you were to go back to the slide I missed there. In the passage in Acts that we were look, looking at earlier, there was three things and there's actually a fourth. The people of the church had purpose, they were empowered, they were committed to the everyday, but I got you to say the word awe when we read through Acts. I got you to say the word awe. I am fascinated with where that word awe shows up in that text because the blueprint for the church is pretty impressive. A lot of great stuff is going on. Shouldn't the whole story have ended with and everybody was in awe over what was going on? No, it doesn't. Why? Because the awe would have been about the church. And that's not what this is about. The awe is at the beginning. Why? Because they were beholding the one, the only, the alpha, the omega, the one who stands in the midst of his churches, Jesus Christ. When we read this text in Revelation, there's golden lampstands. The imagery means churches. Jesus is at the center of his churches. John, who followed Jesus closely for three years, doesn't even recognize Jesus. Why? Because, friends, Jesus is more glorious than you've ever beheld. And you and I will have eternity together with him. And he will continue to amaze us and astonish us with wonder. Why? Because of who he is. Friends, it's wonderful that we'll get to bring the message and ministry of Jesus into everyday life. There's going to be great fruit in front of us, but may there never be a day that there's awe about a personality or about a church thing or a program thing. May our awe only be towards Jesus Christ, the living one. It's the, ministry, the message and ministry of Jesus. He's got fire in his eyes. It's not an intimidating, scary imagery. Why does he have fire in his eyes? Because he's in the midst of the lampstands, which represent the churches. He's at the center of the church. He's more glorious than you and I will ever fully be able to take in. And his eyes are blazed. Why? Because he's looking at his churches with love. And so our call, I think, is just this. Could we look back, not bike with our eyes closed, but open our eyes? And behold, Jesus, would you stand with me? Friends, our vision is always and only Jesus. Which response? Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.